Novacut, this really interesting new, hopefully great video editor project. Um, so, Jason DeRose, one of my personal requirement or one of my personal hopes for Novacut is to have really great color correction. Now you talk. Okay, I didn't know if there was more to more to the question. Um, uh, so I guess one thing I you know I can start with is that color correction is definitely very high on our list. Um, probably, uh, you know, first is um, uh, media organization and a great cutting workflow. Then um, some very basic audio tools, and then color correction is probably the next thing we'll tear into. Um, we're pretty early on the research stage of that, so it's definitely a place where if you have experience with certain you know color correction workflows, and um, we'd love feedback on things you like, don't like, and so on. Um. So, is as far as color correction is, is it more of an emphasis on trying to just get the shots equalized, or is there going to be a pretty heavily influence on actually doing artistic color grades? Um, definitely the artistic color grades, although the, the equalization um, part is something that we have some interesting um, automation opportunities for. So for those of you listening that don't know, um, uh, cinema lenses tend to be color matched so that um, if, if all other things being equal, you go from your you know, 35 millimeter to your 50 millimeter lens, like the color should look the same. But with photographic lenses, they don't tend to do that. Um, and you know, there's different properties they're optimizing for, so the colors are a little different. Um, but because we have all the exif metadata, we do know like the lens that was used normally. So when we have that information, we can do some, or you know, the, the goal is to be able to do some automatic uh, color normalization. So the color looks, the starting color looks the same between different lenses. So kind of the idea of collecting and doing profiling on the lenses. So are you going to, is the plan to do heuristics locally and learn what we do with shots that come from the same kind of lens? Um, yeah, so it would take building some uh, like uh, calibration data where, you know, basically you have to set up like a controlled shot that we can do over and over again and get test data with different lenses um you know different white balances also and then use that data to then do the the correction so you're not gonna like look at real-time prof of bleh, how an end user actually uses the software and just kind of watch what they do and go hmm they consistently do this with this lens to make it 
and they do this with this lens. Um, I, I guess we could, but I mean, it would be hard for that to be that useful because, you know, you, you don't know if the user's just kind of normalizing or if, you know, they're doing the, like you say, the, the artistic color correction. Well, wouldn't, honestly, I would think it wouldn't be that hard to heuristically figure that out because, well, if you're doing the artistic color correction, that's kind of, I've got a shot laid out or I've got an entire scene laid out and now I want to grade the entire scene as a whole. Where if I'm doing color correction, I'm doing it shot by shot. So if I'm doing color correction, since you're using, doing the shots in the slice, um, the slice mode, you should probably do the color grade in the shot kind of mode where you're in the slice, figuring your cuts out and then grading it or some way you can grab and grade an individual shot where you would want to grade the entire sequence of images, yeah, the entire video sequence into, uh, then you do your, your artistic type grades. Right. So that should be, should in theory be trivial to figure out what he's doing. And then you're going to have EXIF data, or you should have EXIF data on every um, shot. Right. So you would be able to associate and see if there was a pattern of standard stuff that he was doing with the same lens. But the other thing you got to think about is you're not always necessarily in the same shooting conditions. So even if you've got two center lenses that are the same, but you're doing shots at a different day and a different lighting condition, one day it was overcast, one day it was bright sun, you're going to have different white balance and whatnot to mess with. Well, and that's why having the, the calibrated data from like a controlled... Um, to test it up is, is important because otherwise, you know, like you said, the, uh, the situations are different, but in terms of, you know, the, the color normalizing you need to do based on physical properties of the lens. I mean, that is something you can measure and, and then apply automatically. So would this be something that we would, you could like end users could take the normal photography white balance boards and actually used to try to give you a a baseline so you can build up a profile for the lens yeah um, pretty much although it's I'm not sure which like the, the gray cards aren't enough um, because part of it's that you know different colors uh, have different transmission efficiencies pretty much on different lenses. So it it takes pretty complicated um, test data, I think, to do this. And again, you know, not an area I'm especially knowledgeable in, but um, I think it's a, it's a place where we could at least um, speed up the workflow a bit because if you can have things close to color normalized, then if you're making an adjustment um, you know, as you're doing the artistic color grading, the same adjustment should produce 
you know, close to the same effect across uh, different shots that are from different lenses. And then, you know, of course the, the artist may make some tweaks to that afterward, but the, just the idea is like um, reducing some of the manual work there. Well, this brings up an interesting project I happen to see that might come into effect. There was a there's a tracker slash learning algorithm. I'm just wondering if you actually like grabbed an object in the scene and put that tracker on it, since this can actually determine the object in multiple scenes, they're shot slightly different. If it would be possible to go, hey, track this person and then you have the exact same person in another shot, and then you can take that just that person's image and try to match those because if they were wearing the same outfit, same costume, they should match. And be able to use that for a normalization and try to work those two, massage them together. Right. Um, yeah, I need to actually learn more about the terminology, but I, I think they call like, you know, if you're making color correction across the entire frame, they call that like stage one or layer one or something. And then when you have a situation where, you know, you basically have like a, a rotoscoped area of the frame that you're applying different color correction to just like, you know, like a person's face or their shirt or whatever, um, they call it like layer two or stage two or something. But um, yeah, definitely another great um, kind of automation thing. And I think some of the current Pro Tools do that where it's like, you know, okay, I, I made the shirt with these uh, color properties in, in this shot, now match it in this next shot automatically. Yeah, DaVinci Resolve actually, I don't know if it matches based on that, but I know it doesn't a lot. I haven't ever seen anybody demo it matching. All I've ever seen is them demoing what they can do per shot basis. And then they try to make the ideal color grade automatically. But I've never actually seen a matching workflow. Heck, I don't think I've ever seen a demo of a matching workflow. Speaking of that, if anybody knows of one, hey, please link. What is it? The Vimeo or Novacut Artist on Vimeo? Um, Novacut Artist Diaries. Yes. If anybody could link or point us towards some of the color grading great tutorials that so we could see what other project other systems actually do and how they work that would be awesome now speaking of rotoscoping can we please have a zoom um you just mean like a a, a crop pretty much or no, no, no. I, I was actually attempting to rotoscope in Katie in life. And in the beginning of the shot where I was going to start doing the rotoscope, the object I was rotoscoping was really, really, really small. So it made it extremely difficult to start. So just being able to zoom into the object to be able to start your rotoscope and then just keep doing the keyframes from that. Oh, nice. Yeah. That, that um, that's a great feature idea. 
it should be i mean it would be nice to be able to zoom in on any element so you can inspect it especially if you're working with a very high res especially if you're using a tablet interface where the res is not that great kind of like an on the set let's check things kind of deal not to mention a dot to dot zoom window would be really nice What do you mean by dot-to-dot zoom? So, say you're dealing with 4K or 5K material. Just be able to uh, basically zoom into a level where it was one-to-one pixel. So, I mean, you may be looking at a tiny portion of the image, but at least you can do focus checking and make sure the footage actually is usable. Uh, Yeah, definitely. So that would be one of the, the probably a shortcake here, some quick way to get into that. And oh, Cinema DNG. Any plans for this? Any plans to approach it? Any plans to deal with raw video at all? Um, plans definitely. Uh, it's just a matter of, uh, I mean, you know, we're starting with Can H Can HDSLR in terms of um, what we'll do our full quality control on, um, and then we'll just kind of pick whatever is that seems to be the second most commonly used camera, kind of for our target users, and then just work our way down the list. Um, but so it seems like right now there's not that many cameras with the Cinema DNG, but um, so I don't know, you know, like that that may be lower priority than trying to support um, the red raw format. No, but Cinema DNG could be because of its openness is probably a really awesome format to do archival stuff in. Is it is a completely open specification that, for whatever Adobe's play, role in it, it's actually open. And since it's actually storing each image in a DNG file, any of your uh, raw photography tools can work with it. Nearly all of those have batch batch editors, so you can edit masses. Uh, yeah. So this could give some more options to people actually wanting to do additional work outside of NovaCut. Speaking about working kind of with NovaCut in the workflow with other tools, what's the plans on that front? Um, so the short answer is yes, we will do that. Um, from, from some feedback, um, recently, it seems like definitely XML support is very high priority, um, which I think will be relatively easy to do. Um, especially because, you know, the way we describe things in our end is just really simple. So, um, it should be fairly easy to map into XML. Um, and then as far as image formats or, you know, video formats, it seems like, uh, 
uh, what is it? EXR and um, uh, DPX are the formats that like a, a, a Hollywood workflow needs. And, you know, a lot of like amateur or no, not not amateur, but, um, you know, low budget indie stuff. Prosumer? Thinking of prosumer? Um, more, no, just lower budget, you know, like indie web series kind of stuff. Yeah, I think that's, in my opinion, the term that tends to fall on that is prosumer. Because that they tend to use cameras that are a little bit more than your average point-and-shoot type cameras, but not necessarily like full-fledged movie cameras. Tend to fall into that prosumer category where they have some money to spend, but it's usually not a... They have buckets of money instead of uh, truckloads of money. I mean, shit, Leo Laporte, I think, falls in this category. Even though his buckets have got quite large. Um, there's a couple more things I was thinking about. Uh, as far as working with other software, is there any plans or hopes that your metadata or the way you organize your clips could be exposed to like a file system level? Um, I think, so this is what we talked about before in terms of like, um, you know, using symlinks or whatever to put them in a um, you know, relatively human readable layout, like the way say Shotwell does by date or something like that. Yeah, something so I can take, say I have a, a a graphics, or I have, like, I need to import this stuff into Nuke, and I want to put it all in one folder so I can just grab that folder and grab everything in it. Now, I mean, it's kind of the workflow that I do with photography. When it, I just organize everything into one album, which ends up, Digicam represents the albums as actual uh, folders on the hard drive. So I just open up Hugin or some other program I need to get to the images. I can just grab everything in the folder, and it's all right there. And it's still in the Digicam archive, so if I have to go back into it to Digicam, I can go back into it and look at it. Right. Yeah, that that would be something easy to do, and I think that's... The, the kind of like exposing all the files for a a specific project like that is a really good use case. Yeah, and then you can interoperate with programs that don't even need to care about what D Media is doing in the back end or care about stuff. They just see all the files in this folder and they go, "Oh, okay," and you just open the folder. I mean. Heck, this could even have a use case for dailies. Hey, I got everything in this folder that I want to show my guy for dailies, and I just grab the folder and throw it at, or open VLC and grab that folder and just play everything in it. Right. 
But yeah. So fairly complete um you know audio tools is definitely what's on the radar first um and then you know, workflow automation like um automatically syncing um you know say a, a zoom recorder with your hdslr the way like pluralize does that's uh, very high priority also so it's something that when we get to it we'll you know, for one, look at what other options or, you know, what other pieces are out there that we can use, like um, integrating with Blender seems like uh, a potential for a big win in terms of um, saving us a lot of work and um, also making, you know, an existing tool, Blender, make, making it a stronger in terms of um, putting more options in its kind of ecosystem, workflow eco- ecosystem. Yeah, Blender is definitely a great tool for everything from creating really interesting 2D graphics that are making 3D models and turning them into interesting 2D graphics to making no shit 2D graphics and creating uh, nice 3D animations. So, speaking of Blender, uh, what other all... What other tools do you think would actually fit in someone working with NovaCut's toolbox? Um, I mean, there's not really any, any limitation. Uh, Blender seems like it's the strongest contender right now. Um, you know, I think f- for some people, uh, you know, say for, uh, I know a lot of people will, will use like Photoshop um, in some of their workflow steps. And for some people, it might be a viable replacement, for, but for some people, I think it's definitely not right now. Um, so I think it just depends on a lot on the individual artist's needs. But I, I'd, I'd love to see um, a lot of creative tools integrate with DMedia. And then um, long term, we want to try to split out some of the core kind of collaborative editing bits also. I might call it de-edit or something like that. But um, so, you know, we really want these components to be used and, you know, they, to be platform building components. Um, as far as splitting out the, the editing part at this point, it's just, it's not that clear to me where the division needs to be, like, you know, where, where you make the cutoff for what's useful to lots of applications and what is really so closely tied to NovaCut that it's, you know, it's not abstracted enough. Um, so I'll let that kind of slow roast for a while, but with Demedia at the very beginning, it was clear where that, that line was. So is there any plans to like integrate with GIMP or maybe bring some of the GIMP libraries in, maybe bring something that would be really interesting is to take a pan shot and then use Hugin to make a really cool, uh, panorama out of that. Yeah. Um, so I, th- I believe there's been some preliminary work on integrating um, Giggle. That's the, uh, what's the acronym even stand for? So it's, it's basically the GIMP image processing library split off into standalone library. Um, so there's been some work on integrating that in GStreamer. 
which is great because it, you know we really want to have um, standard kind of photographic processing available. And the other great thing is that Giggle uses um, uh, 32-bit, uh, you know, linear light for its entire pipe pipeline. So in terms of like doing the final high quality render renders um, or color correction or anything, we're going to need a lot of um, uh, a lot of range to work with in the colors because you know you're going through a bunch of operations and you want to have something left at the end. <laughs> um, so that's a a great option, but it's, it's something that we wouldn't really be doing something specific for Novica. It would just be, you know, making that work better in, in GStreamer. So it would be theoretically, or it's probably going to be possible to take the exact same curve save files that you use for GIMP or you use in Digicam or some other floss tools and actually integrate them into Novica for part of your color grading steps. Um, I mean, it depends on whether an application has that functionality as like a library that's reusable or, you know, how they do that. And I'm a big fan of, you know, applications should put all that stuff in the library, you know, don't have it internal. And that, I guess that's one thing I'll say on NovaCut too is um, we basically want the NovaCut render backend to be uh, nothing, you know, to be... Uh, a small amount of glue code that goes from the way we describe it, it's in CouchDB and maps it into either a you know, non-LIN or, um, a, you know, the correct GES, the GStreamer editing services kind of construction. Um, and as far as, you know, any image processing, uh, audio processing, we, we want to do all that upstream in GStreamer. Sweet. Um, is there any plans to have nice transparency like we already see in uh, OpenShot so we can at least apply titles and have transparent areas of it so we can put a, uh, a nice graphic title creating GIMP or Photoshop on top of a video? Yeah, I think that, sh that needs to be a high priority. Um, in terms of going to be careful to avoid, um, you know, there's some features that are really just for home users. I mean, some of the mistakes that Apple made with FCPX, um, you know, and the, the more I talk to editors, the more I, I realize the way in which, um, you know, adding all the iMovie transitions into the pro editor was kind of insulting. <laughs> and just because, you know, people don't actually use that. Um, but definitely titles are important. Um, I mean, to figure out it's kind of the best uh, initial step for doing that. Oh, sweet. Um, speaking of transitions, well, it, even if they're not in there by default, will there be ways to bring in transitions in case uh, us little home users want to use it just for the heck of it? Um, may have to be in a plugin. <laughs> um, I, I'm not. I'm just not sure right now. Uh, just because uh, you know that we're lucky to have a, 
um, special effects artists hanging out on the channel for a while who worked on Harry Potter and Salt and uh, something else he has the IMDb credit for, I can't recall. But anyway, you know, he specifically asked us to not include uh, silly transitions, or I can't remember how he phrased it exactly, but he said that in terms of, you know, it's like with what he does, it's like they want to film cross dissolve as the only transition. And then in terms of the way they do transition like stuff when they do want that, it's, you know, pretty much compositing like that. They, they don't, the, the pre-canned like wipes and stuff like that just aren't useful enough because you know, that they don't want to use some stock thing that's been used a million times. They're going to, you know, do their own motion graphics and whatever to make it how they want it. Oh, right on. So it would be more of creating a tool to uh, create original transitions and maybe make some canned stuff out of that tool that could be imported. So then you could give a tool to... uh, that isn't necessarily going to cost a huge amount of money that people could uh, use to create their own transitions that would look pretty canned because they wouldn't be pretty canned. Right. And I guess another thing I'll say too is, um, you know, long term, we definitely want the NovaCut render backend to be useful to stuff besides NovaCut. I mean, I would personally love to see it be used for photography also, um, because I think, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a thing that's kind of silly for an application to have internal. And I'd love to see, you know, GStreamer plus Gaggle be able to use um, for processing pipelines. So you could describe um, uh, edits on photos also in the Novica edit description and send that to the Novica server or the render server and have it spit out, you know, the, the, the result. Um, but anyways, to go back to the point I think I had there, <laughs> um, I, I think in terms of like, when we get to the point where we have a little time to think about this and a little room to breathe. Um, if for example, there isn't a great home use targeted video editor out there, it's like, you know, why not build one on the Novacut backend? Um, but I, th- I think there's, you know, there's definitely a line where you can't fit everyone's needs as far as workflow and, um, some key design issues. So uh, you know, I think it, it's, you hit a point where it's better to have a user experience built for casual users and a user experience built for pro users. So potentially, uh, so the goal is to have it so separated the UI can be pulled off and another UI can be ingrained, or even pieces of the pieces of the UI can be changed out so that it would work better for different use cases. Right. Um, yeah, and, and actually, that, that's not even a, a a theory. That's strongly enforced reality <laughs> um, because of the way we use CouchDB as a an intermediary. So um, there's no way to like tie the UI into the render backend um, because we don't let them talk to each other at all. I mean, like, and I think 
that's always people's intent when they make something like a video editor. Um, but in practice, if you can cross the streams, you, you tend to, you know, cause there'll be some little problem. It's like, Oh, well, this is easier to solve. If I have the UI reach in and, you know, get dirty with some details of the G streamer pipeline or whatever. Um, but, but yeah, so the idea is that, you know, you could swap in a different render backend that was built on say like a different multimedia processing library and the UI wouldn't know the difference or you could slap a different UI on it and the render backend wouldn't know the difference. Is there any plans to be able to take the output render and actually componentize it so it can be ran on a, a render farm? Um, definitely. Uh, so there's actually some interesting, somewhat recent developments in GStreamer that um, I just came across recently, but they have a, a new type of um, queue element. So the, the queues used, the original queue is used to create like a thread boundary pretty much. So one side of the queue runs in one thread and one side on in another thread. So they can be running on you know different cores simultaneously. Um, but the Q2 writes to disk. Um, and from what I understand, it's, it's kind of a foundation that would allow you to, um, split a render across multiple servers, but actually have a, you know, coherent GStreamer pipeline still. Um, and then the other thing too, is the way we describe edits is very much designed to allow us to, um, pre-render any step. Um, so the input, uh, into a certain point in the, the editing graph, you know, could be, uh, its own pipeline that's built, or it could be something pre-rendered that, um, you know, you're doing for like, uh, effects that are too complicated to do in real time or whatever like that. So are we talking about running a live editor on a, cl on a cluster? Or running post once the edits somewhat near finalized, actually running it in a render farm to get a final product out, or somewhere in the middle there. Well, um, definitely doing the final render on the cluster, um, doing like the preview rendering on a cluster. You know, it gets a little harder to. Um, Parallelize thing, parallelize things depending on exactly what you're doing. But you know, in theory, like at least in terms of how the edit description works, um, it's it's designed to do both. Um, in practical reality, like getting the real time from a, a cluster won't be a feature we have early on. But um, you know, it's just the the the, the possibilities there for down the road. So if you do something that's fairly complicated to a, a sequence, you could just farm that out to a render farm or farm that out somewhere else in the cluster. And then as soon as it gets done, get it integrated back into the live edit. Right. Um, and it's... Maybe, maybe even do that kind of transparent to the user. So, that, oh, look, it's done. It looks right. Yeah, exactly. Um, so it's 
things are definitely designed for continuous background rendering. So like you said, um, you may apply something and it's something that we can't really do a decent real-time preview of, or you know, maybe do like a, a downgraded preview of, but then in the background, the render server would say, okay, this node in the graph changed and now I'm going to pre pre-render this. So then when you go through it next time, it's not doing it on the fly. It's just playing, you know, um, video that was written to disk pretty much. So this is leading us into the exploding uh, data problem. Is what's the plan on managing uh, real-time render files and all that fun stuff? The plan is that you won't have to manage them at all. Um, so that's all being done with DMedia. Um, we definitely want to have an option to have like a dedicated scratch disk for that kind of stuff, um, both for kind of I/O performance, and then also um, so that the the DMedia stores that um, your, your your source files are on um, don't get you know unnecessarily fragmented because the you know, the background rendering is is a, a lot of small little files kind of all the time. But then all these files are just under, you know, uh, DMedia's purview, so it can do smart things um, like it does with other stuff. Like, okay, so here's a bunch of preview renders that you haven't accessed in two years. So this is fair game for reclaiming space. So there's space for current preview renders that you're creating. So let's say, so you're going to do a smart garbage collection of the fun video renders and whatnot. Exactly. So would it be feasible, say, I have a really nice desktop computer. I mean, I don't have the two or three grand laying around to throw out a a really big, fast SD PCI-X card, but I do have, like, 16 gigs of RAM. Of course, I'm on Linux system. I only really need... 4 gigs of RAM most run the system, so I toss 12 gigs into a virtual drive and use it as a scratch. Would that be a feasible idea? Um, yeah, definitely. Um, it would take some testing to figure out whether that um, is the best use of that RAM. Um, but you know, obviously even if you are writing it to disk, like it's going to be in RAM initially until it gets flushed out by, you know, other file access, but, um, or maybe even doing something like where, um, we initially write it to like a temp FS in memory. Um, and then only after a certain amount of time, when we know you actually are going to continue to use that, then we can write it to, to of a hard disk. So like say, say you make a change um, and just in case you immediately change it again and so that we don't need that cache render, um, you could first write to memory and then move it over. All right, huh? Oh, that could be a poor man's really, really fast scratch drive. Yeah. Because I've actually I've looked at price tags on some of these fast SD cards and RAM and 
the speed, even on slow RAM, makes a lot of these SD cards look, or not SD cards, but SD cards look very cheap, and they have very good performance numbers. The problem is they're not non-volatile. Right. Although for the, you know, the the background rendering, I mean, it doesn't matter if it's volatile or not. Yeah, I mean, you might have to have a, some kind of, hey, we're using it like this. Let's have some kind of autosave function when we can. Try to push it out to a slow disk so that there can be some kind of backup so you don't completely lose track of where you're at. Make sure that CouchDB doesn't live in the RAM. Oh, yeah, uh, with... With changes to the edit, um, that's totally different. That's all uh, very much written discontinuously. <laughs> yeah, you, you would definitely want NovaCut to be aware of the type of memory it was using. Uh, speaking of that, uh, external hard drives and D-Media. Yeah, so... Um, there's a bit more work that needs to be done on this front that probably is going to be done this month. But um, it, early on in kind of the design work for D Media, um, you know, external hard drives are a very important um, use case for us because you know if if say you have a large existing project and you want to hand someone you know two terabytes of files, like being able to physically do that on a hard drive is, is really important. Um, so the, the, the idea of a, a file store or you know, what Demedia calls a file store being on an external hard drive is, is a very first-class feature, um, in, including, um, you know, Demedia will dump, basically dump the corresponding CouchDB documents onto the external hard drive also for, you know, f for the files that are on that drive. So they have something that's totally self-contained um, on that drive. Right on. Okay. Uh, you want to try to summarize everything we've talked about? So we can kind of wrap this up. Ooh. Um, I don't know. We're, we're making something cool, and there's lots of fun stuff to get involved in if you want to work on it. Um, I guess one thing I always like to talk about is kind of our design process, if uh, that would be something you wouldn't mind me chiming in on. Yeah, whatever. Uh, definitely. Uh, yeah, I, I definitely have pulled Jason aside and had interesting discussions with him on Mumbles. Anybody who would like to do that, more than welcome to jump on Mumbles and talk about NovaCut or anything else that they would like to. There is a very Linux cloud, or crowd hangs around here. And Jason, I know when he has the opportunity, loves to talk to artists and try to understand their workflow issues and understand how to make a tool that would be better suited for solving those. 
Yeah, and that's um, uh, you know that's a big part of why we don't have another cut UI yet because you know in terms of making a great UI for target users, like you can't really do that without talking to target users um, a lot. Especially because you know I mean I'm not a professional storyteller, um, so kind of the way stuff settled in. Um, uh, Terra kind of does the, the the UX research or you know the bulk of it, and so her, her approach is kind of a anthropological approach. So she she just you know talks to people, um, you know, in, in person, online, on Vimeo, and then works on boiling that down just into okay, here's what users say they want in their own words, and then. I kind of do the next step, which is to go from that and, um, you know, try to get that into specific technical requirements and kind of prioritize based on um, how long stuff will take also. You know, so if there's, if there's a feature that it's like, okay, users say they want this, but this could be five years of work. Um, and there's another feature users say they want just as much and you know it looks like maybe a couple months so we're definitely going to start with the two-month feature first um and then i try to get things really clear in terms of uh the, the user intent which really has to be expressed in the the schema for how we describe the edits um and you know because we have to get to we have to go from kind of possibly somewhat vague descriptions to very concrete, like, okay, this clearly defines exactly what they're, what they're talking about or what needs to be expressed. And then James comes in on the final step and goes from, um, James actually loves working from the schema pretty much. <laughs> um, and then, you know, building a great UI from that. You have been listening to Hacker Public Radio at hackerpublicradio.org. We are a community podcast network that releases shows every weekday, Monday through Friday. Today's show, like all our shows, was contributed by a HBR listener like yourself. If you ever considered recording a podcast, then visit our website to find out how easy it really is. Hacker Public Radio was founded by the Digital Dog Pound and the Infonomicon Computer Club. HBR is funded by the Binary Revolution at binrev.com. All Binrev projects are proudly sponsored by Lunar Pages. From shared hosting to custom private clouds, go to lunarpages.com for all your hosting needs. Unless otherwise stated, today's show is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Share Alike 3.0 license.